Hey everyone, Anthony Fantano here, internet's busiest music nerd. You're listening to a new episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing a pretty important topic to me and maybe a lot of you, given that you watch so many of my reviews, music writing, think pieces in the modern age, especially in relation to the modern political landscape, the social justice landscape. There's a fantastic piece on the Tiny Mixtapes website right now written by writers Patrick Bean and Nick Scavo. It's a 2015 identity crisis. That's the title of it, correct, guys? Yes. 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 And we're going to be discussing this article. I have linked it down there in the description box. I've also linked Nick and Pat's respective Twitter accounts and their writer profiles on Tiny Mixtapes. I definitely recommend that you check the piece out. We're going to be talking about uh, the albums that they bring up and, and just kind of music and, and writing that takes more of a social slant in this episode. Uh, guys, thanks for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us. Uh, you, you guys opened the whole piece up with a pretty bold statement. Uh, the idea that music criticism is hopeless. And uh, I'm just kind of wondering if you would uh, uh, explain on that a little bit further. I mean, is, is the situation as dire as you sort of seem to portray it? Well, it's, I think it's, it's, that might be a little bit harsh because ultimately in the end of the piece, we argue that it's essential so we're kind of i mean saying that it's hopeless is uh true in a way and i think we kind of go through that a bit in the piece but ultimately hopefully we're like affirming that it's essential at the same time with it i don't know what do you think pat yeah uh i mean i know it's you know essential to the entire i mean process of listening at this point i guess uh hopeless to me in that sense just means more there's not necessarily like an aspirational bent to discussing music uh, and that politics have kind of infiltrated music writing, music criticism. Mm. So, so the issue to you is sort of uh, people aren't reviewing music for the sake of reviewing music and sharing in that experience. It's like they're just kind of partaking in the act of reviewing music to some other end. Yeah. And I guess our primary point where that the end ultimately what we're seeing more and more of that end is an economic end it's an attention grabbing end it's uh something that's that's desiring a, a clarity in music that doesn't really exist maybe um it's it's wanting to kind of say what music is for people as opposed to saying what the music is with the actual music and conversation with the music and and that's sort of a, a, critici a criticism that you guys bring up, the idea that uh, music criticism exists for the purpose of kind of explaining the art to the listener, speaking on behalf of the art. Is that something that, though, you think is kind of a, a baseline characteristic, a necessity for music criticism, though? Or is that something that uh, music writers should be trying to evolve past or uh, just move beyond? Like, that's, that's the littlest you should be doing as a music writer. You should be more ambitious trying to do more. Uh, I think... I mean, a huge amount of music criticism's readership is looking for just descriptions of music uh, and like insights into, you know, sound, just like things to latch on to. Hmm. Uh, but I earlier when I said that politics has infiltrated music writing, I guess that's a little bit misleading because 
I mean, music exists within uh, the political, like, no matter what. It's always already there. Uh, so I think music writing should reflect that, uh, but not only to those ends. So, yeah, it should evolve beyond uh, just description. Yeah. And and what exactly should music writers be trying to incorporate into their reviews other than just kind of simply descriptions of, of what's going on in the music? I mean, I, I think uh, it's essential to add other things, you know, maybe your emotional take on it or something like that. Uh, but, but I think as, as people sort of look at something as social and cultural as music, it's kind of tempting to throw whatever album they're reviewing into the context of whatever's going on currently in the political sphere or in the social sphere. Yeah. And I, I think that what is essential for music criticism is a, is a self criticism as well. And an acknowledgement of, of music criticism's inherent subjectivity, which I think mm. is what think pieces or what a lot of kind of more recent music criticism as has not considered is that the fact that it is a kind of subjective experience of one mind listening to this music. And I think that allows to give room for more emotional takes, more like experiential takes uh, regarding that music. You're allowed to get away with more interesting kind of insights to it because it's your personal insights with it. And other people can either agree or disagree or share in your kind of like value production of that music. But I guess what we were critiquing with this piece is what um, is making off to be an objective kind of statement about whatever moment is happening and to encapsulate that moment and not necessarily consider the more subtle interactions that are at play, I guess. Uh, are, are you saying that there's kind of uh, this rampant illusion of objectivity going on right now that either the readers are putting on to the music criticism and the think pieces or is it that the writers are going into it assuming that everything that they're saying is sort of doctrine in a way i mean i i agree with you that music criticism is a very subjective thing and it's that subjectivity that i don't think uh it can ever get rid of and and if you were to do a completely objective review i don't think the audience would truly want that anyway since it would just kind of be very bland plain descriptions of whatever you're listening to as accurate as possible i think the listeners are kind of looking for a description of the emotional experience of the record and that's incredibly subjective mm -hmm. um so so while that's uh that's something that subjectivity is never going to go away as long as there's at least some kind of entertainment or quality level to reviews and we don't go so hard line to the objectivity uh direction uh i i think um uh, writers should at least strive to attain at least some level of objectivity. You know, it's kind of like a bit of a pipe dream, a level of perfection that's never going to be there. If it was attained, it would probably ruin the art form on the whole. But I think it's something that should at least be considered and always be in the back of your mind as you're writing something. Yeah, I, I just, I think a, uh, like a sort of disassociative critical objectivity is impossible. Hmm. Uh, and I mean, I'd be remiss to say that, uh, I mean, it should be striven for at all. Like, uh, my, well, some of my favorite music reviews are prayers, hmm. <laughs> uh, the one by Max Power, uh, in particular, <laughs> his Sufjan review is beautiful. Hmm. 
Hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I like to think, I, I definitely have come across other music writers who have completely given up on any sense of um, kind of objective or speaking for the work. Half the time I've seen some reviews that don't even mention anything about the music. It's just some insane kind of like gone experience that somebody had with the music and I, but I guess uh, what I was saying earlier about like that objectivity element I think it's more of a lack of self-criticism of like maybe a, a sense of fallibility in criticism or um, that's happening specifically with think pieces is that maybe they're not, I mean, it's obvious that they're not attempting to be objective per se, because the opinion, the opinionated nature of it is kind of assumed if you're reading a think piece. It's editorial, there's someone speaking their opinion, it's assumed to be a subjective take. But I guess like the publishing cycle of these things and the kind of like historical, um, kind of proliferation of them like every moment has to have one of these things being published i think that that gives it an almost historical drive to seem objective even if it's not in its voice it just seems that these things are just telling us what culture is what it's doing at all moments and it's not self-critical enough to allow for a space for us to question the potential nuance of those moments, I guess. So is it that, uh, I, I guess, uh, is the issue that culture and, and sort of a certain political slant and ideology is being inserted into music reviews? Or is it that it's not being inserted into it well or in an objective or a tasteful way? Um, you know, because I, I noticed a... There aren't a whole lot of, I guess, sort of, you know, blatant examples sort of thrown into uh, the piece of specific reviews. And maybe it's just kind of for lack of want to, you know, shake the rattle any cages or just kind of rock the boat or anything like that. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, I could I could think specifically of, uh, uh, you know, since, since since we're on this subject already, there was that. Uh, run the jewels review of run the jewels Two that tiny mixtapes had put up that, mm -hmm. that, that, that basically just kind of, uh, uh, you know, threw the album into a corner and just, uh, completely categorized it as sexist and really didn't explore it any further than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean that I don't necessarily have a problem with, with someone wanting to insert like political or cultural context into music writing. Um, and if, if that's, all that someone does, I mean, yeah, it is limiting to an extent, maybe. But at the same time, I guess, like, the piece is describing, like, how that is essential to do. I think that mm -hmm. especially music, music is coming out of those political circumstances. And a lot of the music that we talked about in the piece certainly does. And it's uh, kind of mired or responding to or involved in those contexts. Um, but I guess the issue that we had was when pieces kind of try and say what exactly that is for the music and uh, kind of like haphazardly or sloppily create an opinion for the music and ultimately misrepresent the music or at least the fragmented qualities of the music. Yeah, I, I suppose that can be an issue. You know, I've, I mean, I've read tons of opinions about 
records that obviously take some kind of uh, political slant or make a social comment or some of, of, of some kind. And uh, it's, it seems the more popular the record is, uh, the more chances there are for that message to be kind of either misconstrued or misunderstood or misrepresented in some kind of major way. Um, I mean, certainly the biggest example of that this past year uh, was definitely Kendrick Lamar's latest record, um, an album that uh, people either sort of saw it as this record that limp-wristed white liberals enjoyed because it made them feel good that they were listening to, I don't know, some black person's experience, or uh, there was kind of this response from the other side of the fence where I saw people kind of charging the record with uh, this claim that it's not political or controversial enough since it's not pissing anyone off or making some kind of big grand statement. And uh, for me, I mean, I think uh, it's so rare that we get an album that's so popular and is making at least a couple political statements. And I feel like some people, uh, some people, some listeners sort of took the few moments where it felt like a strong social statement was being made and carried it on to the rest of the tracks, which are really more personal in tone and weren't trying to, uh, you know, sort of take it to the man or anything like that. Uh, so as a result, I think, uh, you know, as, as albums that take certain stances get more popular, uh, inevitably there's going to be these kinds of uh, misunderstandings and and horrible uh, reviews as well that are just uh, you know completely misrepresentative of what went on on the record in terms of uh, its message. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, there's going to be an impulse to like have a reactivist or like highly like uh, sensationalized political take on an album that huge, and especially when it is explicitly dealing with. I mean, very immediate, uh, like problems, uh, in our, like in the United States. Um, but it's, I think it's also a, it's, I don't know, there's a problem of like stratified listening where you would try to approach that record solely on aesthetic terms or solely, uh, as a political object. Uh, I think that's one of the problems I've found in Think Pieces. So uh, we, we've been talking a lot about reviews. Uh, let, let's move over a little bit toward think pieces. Um, wh- one thing I want to uh, uh, define or sort of clear up before we totally make that jump is, uh, is, is part of the issue being discussed here that the think piece and the review are kind of uh, in this effort to make writing more clickable, more controversial, more shareable, uh, kind of mixing together in this dangerous way, not a dangerous way, but kind of a, uh, in a way that's kind of souring both, you know, sides of the fence. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that like, I've seen scores aside, you know, like some people feel the need to give scores, tiny mixtapes, the needle drop or two mm. websites that do that. And, um, but the more and more I see reviews, I think over, especially in the past few years, the less and less I see those quantifications. And then one step further, the less and less I've seen even any negative reviews, um, <laughs> which I think is emblematic of music writers seeing how kind of pointless a negative review is economically <laughs> because mm-hmm. ultimately 
you're trying to push products, you're trying to create controversy, unless you it does create a sense of controversy because negative reviews can do that. But for the most part, they're affirmations of PR. And um, I've seen more and more of that personally in the past few years. And I think that's kind of indicative of this wanting to make things clickable, wanting to kind of have a, a certain level of hype consistently coming across. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that that is certainly a I, I would say an underlying issue to uh, to all of this. I mean, you know, music criticism, music reviewing, music journalism, uh, for a lot of websites has kind of mixed very dangerously with PR uh, to the point where the legs of music journalism, the biggest legs out there, are just kind of an extension of the PR firms, uh, and and you know, we're just kind of being told positive things about the record just because that's good for the sake of the artist and that's good for the sake of the label that the artist is signed to and that's good for the sake of the PR company that is uh, promoting the artist that's being reviewed. It's good for business in general. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly, a, I think, a, I don't know, would, would you guys say that's more of a surface level issue, kind of a symptom or sort of the root to a lot of what's being discussed in this article? Because uh, certainly there is reason to believe that given the, the piece does go into a lot of albums, and we'll talk about this next, uh, that did kind of take, in, in your view, political stances of some sort to make some kind of social comment, but but many of them sort of fell under the radar due to either uh, maybe a lack of PR or sort of a, a lack of a controversial or an obvious social message. Yeah, I mean, uh, music criticism and PR are just they're operating within the same apparatus. Like hmm. it's uh, just different applications. Like it is, uh, I mean, there's, I guess there is a danger uh, to that. It's like that uh, criticism is content marketing, native advertising in some senses, uh, but it has the potential to be more than that when that's just the assumed state of uh, the industry. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I agree with that criticism and I agree with a lot of the criticisms you guys have brought up in this piece. And, and as much as I would like things to be different, I sort of feel like th there are other branches of journalism where it would seem like objectivity is supposed to be not only attainable, but of the utmost importance. Um, and even in those spheres, it seems like the general public doesn't even care about the truth as much as they care about hearing something that's going to reaffirm how they already feel about, uh, I don't know, the war on terror or uh, left-wing issues or right-wing issues, so on and so forth. And if that's the case, if that's like persistently the point of view, uh, what, what hope does music journalism even have? You know, uh, 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 I guess I guess that's my question. And uh, you know, not necessarily that you guys haven't have an answer. You know, uh, but but I feel like the only thing I can do is just try to do my best, understanding that you know, even even my efforts, if I were to try to you know, sort of point things out or fix anything. It, it wouldn't necessarily fix anything and it wouldn't necessarily make people care. Yeah. I mean, I just realized how cynical uh, I sound. I never really feel <laughs> like in the service of like a label when I'm writing. Sure. Review. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I hope I'm like flying at something. I don't know. You're a cynical piece of shit. Thank you for coming <laughs> Yeah, on. right? I'm, I'm... Loosen up, guys. Come on. Yeah. And okay. For 
for me, I mean, like, to be totally honest, I enjoy most music in general. I mean, as mm-hmm. like kind of, you know, optimistic and not cynical as that might sound like, I think most music has the potential for someone to feel a certain way about and um, positive things. Most music, maybe even a hundred percent of music is positive to me personally. It's an opinion. Mm-hmm. Sure. But um, I think that again, like what you're saying about certain things, reaffirming ideologies, that's the problem. I, I agree. I have a problem with that. And I think that naturally runs against some of the material um, optimism and potentiality of music and artistic creation in general. And I think think pieces are an exaggerated version of that, where they are specifically trying to pin the piece of art or the piece of music against the wall and define it and speak for it in such a way that I think a review doesn't necessarily do. I think a review is flawed in a way that's similar to the music. Um, whereas a think piece pretends to be a kind of perfect representation of a historical or cultural moment for everybody. So. Okay. Um, to, to sort of further clear out the cynicism a little bit. Um, I mean, generally I enjoy a lot of the music that comes across my table and, and just because something happens to be marketable doesn't necessarily mean it's bad or that uh, it's, it's awful. I mean, we're sort of in an age where, something hip creative challenging can in fact be marketable you know mm. that that wasn't as much the case decades and decades ago back before the internet was pretty much the primary route for music discovery for a lot of people and and a, a lot of the music scenes on the internet sort of operate with these uh, niche sort of characteristics where everybody can kind of go solo do their own thing not really worry about having to appeal to everybody in order to share their music and get it out there uh, and and when something hip and challenging does end up being marketable and does end up selling a lot of copies I mean, that's that's something to celebrate mm. you know that's not necessarily a a bad thing i mean it's a, a let's take this new david bowie record for example i mean in a lot of respects it's very strange it's totally off the wall and it's like on the front page of itunes mm-hmm. you know um 10 15 years ago an album this challenging it might not have been the case i mean uh, actually david bowie did quite a bit of uh, quite a few odd records in the 2000s that you know didn't see quite as much attention as his older work mm-hmm. uh, and, and didn't get quite as much internet buzz and uh, it seems with this new record uh, and, and even prior to the you know announcement of his death uh, it seemed like there was a really warm reception going on mm-hmm. yeah definitely I think that um, in the desire section of our piece we kind of addressed that with the three artists that being Sophie Carly Rae Jepsen and Grimes. And um, I think Grimes is someone who I happen to really love Art Angels. A lot of people didn't at Tiny Mixtapes. Um, but personally, she's someone who's kind of come from this DIY, like house show scene. And, um, you know, like very kind of illegible vocals, you know, a, a Roland synthesizer and a microphone um, and ended up making like this incredibly rich, lush pop record that's incredibly marketable. And you saw the industry grow with her artistic identity um, and you saw her react to that numerous times throughout her kind of 
growth as an artist. And then on the other side, you see someone like Carly Rae Jepsen, who is like a pop star. And you see a lot of like underground or experimental communities really digging her emotion album. I think you're starting to see kind of like the the um, fluidity between things that were once um, more socialized or more specific to certain markets. Well, in, in regards to the Carly mention that ended up in your piece, uh, I, I think it has to do with like what you said. Um, it seemed like as modern and as new as the record felt, it, it seemed like she was incorporating a lot of older and tried and true pop sounds and song mm -hmm. stylings uh, in her music, which I think made it kind of accessible to an audience that looks for music that has a little bit more depth to it, uh, maybe even a hint of nostalgia to it, not simply something, not simply something that is the newest, loudest, biggest, most sugary pop song that uh, the major labels can kind of cobble together in the studio. Mm -hmm. For sure. And um, let, let's also speak to Sophie a little bit since we're in kind of that section of the piece. And I want to talk about the music that you guys bring up a little bit more. Uh, Sophie certainly seems to be in a position where the accessible and the inaccessible, the, 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 I don't know, the, the weird and uh, <laughs> the bubblegum, the, 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 the type of music that you would find people dancing to in a club are both kind of embraced at the same time. And, and you feel like, uh, uh, some kind of statement is being made uh, vicariously through this? I do, definitely. Um, hmm. I mean, I think that the fact that it's uh, on McDonald's commercial and noise heads love it is <laughs> a testament to its actual quality. I think hmm. that uh, the actual, you know, we could talk about social implications of it like yeah it's cheesy yeah whatever like you know I, i'm not necessarily interested in that as much as i'm interested in how amazing it sounds and i think that a lot of people who try and critique sophie's music fall short because they try and and fit it again in in a social framework a social framework that's really important to it it's coming out of a kind of a certain context and a certain um kind of like identity-driven context, but the material productions that he's created are so um, actually amazing, in my opinion, that, that it kind of renders those things moot, personally. I don't know what you think, Pat. Yeah, well, and I mean, what one of the main criticisms, like, inauthenticity gets levied against it, uh, which is just as absurd as calling, I mean, Carly Rae or Grimes inauthentic. Like that they don't understand the conditions into which they're like submitting their creation. I, I think um, that inauthenticity sort of criticism, do you feel like that partially comes from, do you feel like that comes mostly from the music or could it also have something to do with kind of the elusivity of PC music and just kind of that whole brand at large? I mean, I know a lot of people, uh, sort of seemed steamed over the the idea that Sophie would perform live with someone who was kind of dressed uh, in a very feminine manner and sort of saw that as like an exploitation of uh, femininity in some kind of way. I mean, I think they're pretty, as a collective, self-aware of their aesthetic and just playing with like post-internet identity uh, and I'm, I, I can understand arguments that that's exploitative 
uh, as well as I can understand arguments that they're playing uh, in like a productive way with mm. identity. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Nick, do you? <laughs> yeah, I feel like, I mean, I think some criticisms about them are more warranted than others. Um, the one criticism I don't have much patience for regarding criticism of Sophie or PC music is one that just calls them cheesy or their sound silly or people who just don't like it because of the kind of coolness that surrounds it. Um, again, this is like a big part of the essay itself is just a, a reluctance to, to accept pieces that attempt to just on a purely cultural level define exactly what something is. And I think that is comes from like the the biggest, you know, music publication that submits this giant think piece, but I also think that's evident in your friend who refuses to step outside of his little or their little um, bubble regarding their opinions about music. And I think that PC music is something that shows that often because um yeah. And and um, I don't know. Could could this off-putting vibe that people have toward some of PC music's output, calling it cheesy, calling it corny, and just leaving it simply at that, uh, could that have something to do with? I don't know. At least to me, and I enjoy this. There's at least a touch of. Uh, this is a little tongue in cheek, or maybe it's a little funny. Like we're in on the joke. It, there's obviously something kind of silly about what we're doing here, but uh, underneath that, there's a lot of skill to what's going on in the production and the sound craft and and all of that. Yeah. And and I think consistently over decades and decades and decades, people have a hard time sort of appreciating at least even an element of comedy in their music. For sure, Definitely. and like. Yeah, to me, there's nothing jokey about about PC music or Sophie. Yeah. They're the mm. most like serious artists to me. Like they're 100% committed to what they do. There's never been a point where they've like changed anything about what they've done. Really, mm -hmm. it's been sure. like consistently we're doing this, and they're doing it really well. And I think that shows like a a commitment that I think uh, is is culturally misunderstood by some people who who are feeling like it's this joke or inauthentic thing or whatever but I think it's like really sad if uh it's it's like tragic if you have to ironically enjoy PC music or if there has to be that filter to have fun with it uh I mean you should try dancing with it and same thing with with Carly Rae uh I yeah think a lot of people you know might have picked up on her music and have been enjoying it through an ironic lens like oh wow this is a pop star I, it's cool to like you know pop in this way again or on the reverse spectrum like i hate grimes but now i like grimes because you know there's just a bunch of ridiculous like flip-flopping on that level it, to yeah. me it's all good like all of them no it's 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 absolutely true i mean i my review of the new grimes record was way more positive than i thought it was going to be and Pretty consistently, I got messages just saying, like, what the hell are you talking about? This record's trash. I can't believe you like it. Uh, and that came from both people who enjoyed her last record so much and from people who I know personally who have taken kind of a raucous stance on a lot of newer records and, um, you know, d don't see much merit in what people like Grimes are doing. 
but whatever i guess that's neither here nor there let's um get into uh some of the other music that you guys bring up uh, you guys bring up one of tricks point never a record and and you definitely tease some interesting ideas out of uh, sort of the statement being made on the record or what you perceive to be, uh, what the album is saying. But, um, uh, you know, for me personally, uh, a lot of the sounds, if I just kind of take them for what they are, it just seems so abstract that it's not overtly communicating anything to me other than just really stimulating you know, sounds and creative ideas. Although, you know, I will say that, uh, Daniel most definitely seems to, very strangely thrive uh despite making such left field music and not really giving into uh this trend of uh just kind of a cult of personality it just kind of seems like so much of the music that comes out now is very heavily personality driven and that's just not really his mo yeah i i reviewed garden of delete for tiny mixtapes and kind of went off the deep end with that review so <laughs> You might see a little bit of that here and and this section of the piece specifically talking about his music. But um, I guess I was in the review and here, I think I'm arguing that specifically with Garden of Delete, he is imploding his art in some way um, or denying himself. He spoke a lot about that with the whole Ezra thing and this kind of like damaged quality to his music and... um, I think here, I guess we did talk about how it was like almost like a sensational effort on his own part of to like damage his own kind of artistic quality, which in turn made it even better. It's like the one thing he could do in his own artistic continuum. You know, you see that kind of negative opus in a lot of careers. Like you have, you know, the Yeezus or the Kid A record, which is mm-hmm. this like, you know, denial of everything that makes the artist what they are and garden of delete isn't necessarily that but it is that for one tricks point never in my opinion and yeah. uh, and uh, however complicated that might be because the context for one tricks point never is very complicated aesthetically i guess um i mean it's 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 an album that's certainly explosive like those other records that you sort of bring up um at least for him if you're analyzing it within the context of the rest of his discography it does seem kind of dangerous yeah and it's the i feel like it does play with uh it's the first to play with his cult of personality in some way like acknowledging his like acclaim or the idea that he is this like avant artist and like the pr leading up to it the editor (laughs) interviews does i don't know it, it toyed a lot and I th- uh, yeah, and just the idea that there's this fake band out there that inspired the music. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think you, you know, and we were able to kind of write this piece a few months or one month after Garden of Delete came out. So we kind of got to see how the press handled it. And in my opinion, it kind of fell into the trap of this like hyper grunge rock band, you know, like adolescent aesthetic, which in my opinion, like, has nothing to do with the album like i think (laughs) you know those are those are all kind of like dressing ups on the album and a lot of the kind of press that surrounded the album involved it being like you know this um you know squealing guitar smokes and fire and you know like melting skin and all this stuff but it again it wasn't necessarily analyzing the album 
uh, outside of the kind of signifiers that were surrounding it, which I think were set up so that it would effectively kind of create that PR around it. Well, yeah, for a lot of music writers who tend to sort of be within a few years of how old I am or you are, um, a lot of the things blatantly referenced musically on the record are kind of nostalgic things. So as a result, I mean, of course, that stuff would, uh, you know, sort of bring up ideas and themes of adolescence to uh, uh, the person listening. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the new James Ferraro record, a record that I, I personally didn't really care for, um, but an album that still I do do appreciate it for what it seemed like it was trying to uh uh, say socially. However, uh, it seems like the record didn't really make that big of a splash. And, uh, uh, at least the way the piece read to me, it was, uh, like you guys kind of saw that as a bit of a, a tragedy, either that people either weren't uh, appreciating the music or maybe the, the message was kind of lost on them. I'm trying to, I, I don't, I feel like, uh, it wasn't so much like a political failing, uh, of mm. like critics to engage with, well, no, maybe it was <laughs> like uh, it was such a like aesthetic uh, step from NYC Hell that I think he was seen as like staying in his own niche, uh, and it kept people or critics from really engaging with the statements, like very like uh, localized, like historic uh, engagement with LA and like uh, racialized violence in the U.S. Uh, in a way yeah. that you know people were ready to talk about to pimp a butterfly or uh one Oatrix point never <laughs> or one Oatrix, yeah exactly yeah i mean uh, yeah in my in my opinion ferrero i'm a huge ferrero fan so ferrero can do no wrong in my eyes mm-hmm. but um i think it's kind of obscurity and it's uh you know general yeah, like if critics did say that it didn't deviate enough from NYC Hell or it's too kind of obtuse for them or frankly, if they just don't like his voice or they think that what he's doing is like too kitschy. I mean, he's a he's an artist on his own terms. He's working. He's kind of in his own lane doing his thing. He's been doing his thing. And I, you're either you either enjoy it or you don't, or you're willing to kind of step into his world, or you're not. And um, I guess if you do step into it, there's a lot of brutal commentary and a lot of incisive commentary and a lot of beautiful commentary inside of it. So um, that's my opinion about the record. Okay, and and I like that you know we're sort of bringing these albums up in this context, and it sort of uh, could allow for the listeners to maybe go back and listen to some of these records um, and give them a bit of a different mental angle to sort of dig up what some of these albums are really trying to say. And and again, you know, definitely refer to the piece uh, in light of what uh, Nick and Pat are saying about these albums. Um, but another record that seemed like it fell underneath even more radars was the new uh, Auteur Nouveau uh, record. I mean, I didn't care for the record either, but um, it seemed like there was just this huge, uh, I guess, (laughs) uh, gap of buzz in between what happened with his last record and what happened with this latest record. And to be perfectly honest, I wasn't a fan of the last record either. So from the standpoint of two guys have, who have obviously been paying more attention to him than me, what exactly happened this time around that didn't 
occur last time around or you know vice versa well it's a uh, hard to pinpoint but i mean i think uh, a large part of the negative reception was just that he's doing something i think nobody really expected or uh wanted to <laughs> hear from him uh like yeah, age of transparency is just a, it's it's you know in the same emotional like bare like raw mode as anxiety but it doesn't really have a an angle <laughs> that's easy to latch onto. and if there is an angle it's maybe that one regarding transparency or um you know this kind of like mediated authenticity where you know, it's it, it's basically like a meta conversation in a way, and I, I feel like that might take uh, a level of patience that a lot of people don't have for music. I mean, there's so much music nowadays, and we're used to his sound. I think that the general R&B vocalist thing has become dominant in a way that uh, when Anxiety came out, it wasn't. So people might have like just not felt it because of its context in 2015 this time, but. I know Pat, you really love the record. I like it too. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not necessarily trying to get you guys to uh, boil down what's trying to be said on the record. I mean, I think kind of the point that you guys brought up, and I and I do agree, uh, the album doesn't put forward a really kind of boom smacking you over the head with a really obvious idea or point or statement on something. Um, so as a result, if the listeners have to stick around in order to sort of read into what's being said to sort of understand a really complex issue, a really complex statement, um, it's, it's not as easy as just kind of getting behind a record that sort of puts out there a very plain and simple black and white us versus them mentality, or, you know, just overly simplified views of, oppression or whatever is kind of, you know, sort of the, uh, the flavor of the day as far as political views go in a lot of these reviews and in a lot of these think pieces that you guys were criticizing earlier in the piece. So as a result of that, is it kind of harder or less interesting or less, I don't know, monetarily solvent for some records like this to be reviewed since writers can't sort of uh, pigeonhole them and throw them at listeners at such an angle where they're like, hey, this record's making a really cool statement that you're totally going to agree with because you read that think piece that we wrote last week and it says exactly that yeah ex exactly and we made we made a joke about that like at the end of the ferrero section where you can imagine like a fake headline about ferrero that's like imagine james ferrero or like meet james ferrero the internet artist turning skid row into sonic fire or something you know like just <laughs> it just it just seems absurd to do that given the kind of damaged quality of that record. Um, mm. And if it was sensationalized, um, the artist would probably hate it as well, you know, <laughs> which is another whole issue to bring up. Um, it's whether or not artists even want this to happen to their work in the first place. I mean, as, as jokey as that headline is, I mean, that, that could be a serious headline on another website. And it kind of sounds like you guys should be doing, I don't know, either running a site or doing some PR where you know you're just you're just throwing all these political angles at writers and, and telling them what to write about these records yeah and you know in my opinion like 
someone who writes about current music and music that's just coming out and I'll write a review or we'll, you know, have an interview with an artist and really feel for it. And I can't help but like feel a sense of like general malaise when I see that article come out in a few weeks later or a month later where it's like, you know what's happening. You know that the apparatus is getting its machine rolling and you see that headline come out about some artist that you're into. And I don't think it's a, you know, it's not inherently a bad thing. Like it's, I'm not trying to have this like punk rock idea where like, oh, if it gets popular, it's bad. But like, I think we do have to be careful about how, um, in trying to bring this music to a bigger audience, um, being careful not to let the qualities that made the work what it was get lost in that transition, I guess. So, yeah, so. Uh, it's it should be stated again. Popular is not bad. It does not necessarily mean mad, bad. It just seems like what you guys are pretty obviously protesting is the idea of trying to make the music popular, trying to give the music buzz off of a bunch of empty political platitudes using think pieces or using reviews. Yeah. It's just, it's the sense that a specific like political framework would overwrite like some secret or some like uh, complexity within the art. Uh, hmm. It's like a, a damaging way of viewing a work that like sort of limits its own like subjectivity in life and possibilities for, you know, a million different uh, experiences. And also on the side of criticism, it's it's doing the same thing for the writing that's happening about music. I would say where mm -hmm. you get these you get these cookie cutter articles and headlines that you're reading the same article over and over again, you know. And it's uh, yeah, it's just kind of homogenizing in regards to the art and the writing about the art. Yeah, well, I, I think. Um I, I, unfortunately, I think a lot of websites sort of overread one another or maybe just overread the press release that's handed to them uh, along with the artist. So as a result, you do kind of see a lot of those same phrases popping up again and again and again and again in reviews. I mean, I know personally I try to avoid any and all reviews when I'm writing a review. Um, so I'm not sure how much of, you know, sort of, uh, what I'm saying might be the same exact thing as what other people are saying, uh, as well on a lot of these review sites. But, um, but the thing is also, we're kind of all living and thriving in the same context, you know, in this music writer world and, and viewing these albums through, uh, as, as specific as we would like to think our experiences are, uh, we're still kind of viewing these albums through a very similar lens since we've got to crunch out these reviews in a certain amount of time and it's got to be consumable for an audience and uh, there's certain phrases and ways of writing and communicating that are the most effective that we all kind of stick to. So as a result, I think there are some similarities that are obviously going to pop up in uh, the writing about some of these records. Yeah, and I think that's okay. Um, I don't think it's a... It'd be definitely okay if everyone was trying their hardest to write about the music and everyone's reviews ended up the same because they tried so hard to write about it and they got all the ideas really right. Like, that would be amazing. I think it's uh, the kind of competitive 
idea that has even led itself to this think piece culture. The fact that you ha do have to differentiate yourself from other publications and this kind of competitive environment where everyone's like, you ha your review has to be written way different um, has kind of led to just the optimization of that entire situation where people stop doing that and instead do the most efficient thing, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, let's finish up by sort of getting into this section of the piece where you guys essentially say the, uh, uh, the battle is over. Um, while certainly, you know, you guys do acknowledge music criticism. I mean, certainly, like you said at the beginning of the piece, it's hopeless, but it's still necessary. It's still going to be around even if we uh, were to take uh, some kind of violent action and completely obliterate any and all music press. Uh, there would still be opinions, and, and because those opinions can be launched over social media and people tend to congregate toward opinions that they like on social media, I mean, those individuals are going to end up having followings just like any music site used to have a following, you know, prior to their obliteration. <laughs> so, you know, there's still going to be opinions, there's still going to be points of view, and there's still going to be people congregating around these points of view. Um, so uh, uh, even though music criticism is necessary and it's going to be around whether we do something about it or not, uh, you know, is the future of it kind of dismal in, in your point of view? Uh, I, I like the sort of democratization of uh, music criticism you just imagined. Like I'm thinking of like the yeah. a tweet with like the most uh, well, engagement. Well, older music critics would argue you know, that, that it already has been democratized heavily. I mean, certainly it's not, you know, in that position of perfect democratization, but uh, part of the reason a lot of music critics who came up in the 80s and 90s uh, don't have careers anymore is that it's been democratized to the point where uh, their services are no longer, you know, sort of needed. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you know, so, so, I mean, you know, we, we are talking about at least some democratization, I guess is my point, mm. you know, uh, but, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about democratization in an even more extreme sense. Yeah. And I guess like the, the machines or the, the press apparatus has, has moved to understanding that democratization where you can pay whoever to write whatever, and it will work, you know, like mm. as, it's as content. simple. Yeah, it's like, you know, con like just basic content marketing stuff. And um, I guess uh, the think pieces that we're talking about are the kind of content marketing that contains a certain political um, feeling. And it's, uh, it's as like and in, in that last section, we do try and not rob it of its potential meaning. Like we're not just trying to say all think pieces are bad. Um, I, I think Pat mentioned in that last section that there is a hopefulness in, politici in politicized music writing. And um, it does uh, kind of allow for conversations to take place and um, kind of positive arguing and differences of opinion to get fleshed out on social media and blah, blah, blah. But I guess it's the um, potential replacement of that type of writing and that type of thinking with the actual tools for carrying out a real political optimism with the mere feeling of that 
political situation. Um, I don't know if you want yeah, to talk yeah. about that more. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, I think, you know, think pieces are endlessly important, like, to give, oppos- like, a, a platform to oppositional voices, uh, you know, minoritized voices, like, marginalized writing. Uh, but so often, the engagement or, like, the sharing and everything is just uh, almost exploitative in the sense that it sure, is I mean, just, it, it's-, it's the feeling of, like, a... I don't know, being engaged or active uh, without any sort of real mobilization happening. Yeah. I mean, it's, it seemed like the way that you guys had ended it and, you know, I, I think we'll kind of close up here uh, and, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but uh, it seemed like political speech in music writing, you know, given music writing is, is so indebted to culture uh, is going to happen and it's necessary but the thing is is that it's important for the quality of that speech and those points of view to be good level-headed and objective and not be informed by this idea that we need to throw these empty political buzzwords and sort of this point of view into the piece because it's going to be more controversial yeah (laughs) uh i'm trying to i just Yeah, and those, I'm searching. <laughs> and those, I think you're right. Um, that that danger is not in the think piece; it's in the kind of baiting of culture and the controversial words that are thrown into it, and the kind of like self-pleasing uh, quality that happens when something is sensationalized to the point of. And that's a, the subtitle of the piece: is uh, listening for identity in a sensational vacuum and uh just kind of like the relentless sensational political atmosphere that you feel uh when you're scrolling through anything and to actually hear an artist's identity in that kind of noise and if you can hear it at all all right i want to thank uh, you guys for coming on and talking with me about the piece again i'm going to link this piece down there in the description so you guys can read it yourselves and uh, I just appreciate you guys uh, having a conversation all about this stuff and uh, and what you yeah, wrote. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having Thank us. You.